Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings. This is Hugh Ballou. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. Every week we have a guest that has knowledge and wisdom and experience in a topic and these are people that have been there, done it, and they've got some things to share with you. You're sitting in the seat as clergy, nonprofit leader, board chair, um, maybe you're a business person and you're thinking about launching a nonprofit. Well, this series is to help you think out of the box, think of some new paradigms, and to learn from people who are experienced. Today, my guest is from St. Louis, Missouri, and he's the author of this book, Five Minutes for Fundraising, and the subtitle is A Collection of Expert Advice from Gifted Fundraisers. Uh, Martin, is it Liefeld? I didn't ask you how to pronounce your name, Liefeld. Yeah, I, I pronounce it Liefeld. <laughs> okay, so welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. Would you tell people a little bit about yourself and why is it that you do what you do? Sure. Well, thank. First of all, of course, Hugh, it's an honor to be on your program. Thanks so much, and I appreciate your audience very much. Hope I can be helpful. So, I've been um, uh, probably 45 years doing in various kind of leadership roles. Uh, 25 years of those were in small and larger universities, and also 25 years, although they didn't overlap uh, exactly with the universities, uh, I've been doing uh, been involved in fundraising. And um, I, about two years ago, I retired after 10 years as Vice Chancellor for Advancement at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, which is our local uh, urban land-grant university here in St. Louis, and had a wonderful run there. You know, long story short, um, uh, here in the St. Louis region, which is where I, I spent my 25 years of fundraising, uh, over 500 million raised, that's a lot of money for St. Louis. Um, but you know, it's not about the dollars raised, it's about the involvement and the lives changed, the impact because of the dollars raised. Uh, two years ago, I, I retired, Hugh, and uh, it wasn't my timing to be honest with you, health issues, you know, it's the way things go. But uh, my handle in the last couple of years has been author, coach, consultant, and speaker. A little bit, a little bit of everything, I think you know what I mean. <laughs> and um. I have a website, martinleifel.com. If people want to uh, look through that, there's over 120, 125 videos on fundraising and on leadership. Uh, you were kind enough to point out the book. I've been doing podcasts, as I mentioned, a couple dozen podcasts and regular postings, particularly on LinkedIn. I have a large following. So uh, I'm trying to give back. This is all about trying to give back to a profession that's been uh, such a blessing for me, so good for me in so many respects. I've grown as a person, certainly developed professional skills, but I've grown as a person by doing this really extraordinary work of uh, fundraising. Just so you know, we have in the audience um, two fundraisers who are CFRE um, fundraisers. So <laughs> they're, they're here because they heard about you. And, uh, so. Well, We'll let them ask questions a little bit later. <laughs> I'm beginning to sweat you. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're very nice people. They're very nice people. I hope so. Um, 
I had a, a, a funding professional on last month, and he said he buys a fundraising book a week and reads it. Gosh. My my take on I, you know my area is transformational leadership, and the conductor was the conductor know about leadership. Well, we know about leadership, um, and the best leaders I work with in corporate or nonprofit leader, are the people that are always working on themselves. Yeah. You know, this, the famous speaker Jim Rohn always said, "Work on yourself harder than you work on your business." And so I. I wrote that down many years ago, and I'm still working on it. 73, I got a long way to go. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm impressed by somebody that would read a book weekly. Um, you know, I, I talk about, in fact, there's a chapter in the book called The Three C's of Fundraisers. And if I might, Hugh, what, you know, there's three C's. Uh, the first is competence. If you want to be involved in fundraising and being somebody of impact that makes a difference, Mm -hmm. You have to develop competency, and there's really two ways you do that. One is lifelong learning. You know, you're a student of the game, you're a student of the, the practice, and that could include certifications and the like. You mentioned two CFREs in the audience, which makes me nervous. Um, no, and, and, and so you want, and you go to webinars like this, podcasts, and so on and so forth to remain educated and current in the field. But book learning, that kind of learning alone, doesn't make you an impactful uh, person in the work of philanthropy. You have to add to that experience. And in any profession, uh, if you're working diligently and you're learning, being humble as you uh, work your way through uh, successes and failures, you should acquire uh, the kind of experience that makes that, that all that study that you do really come to life and, and have its uh, you know, be most virtuous, you might see. But that's just confidence. You have to have confidence. And, you know, confidence is not bravado. It's not faking it till you make it. Real confidence grows alongside that whole development of confidence. But to get to your point, this is a long way of getting to your point, one of your points, is the third C is character. So what people, what, what donors want is they want somebody who's competent. They want to recognize a competent professional that, that, that's doing their work with excellence and that have that quiet confidence that comes over the course of time. But what they're really looking for is people of outstanding character, people who are virtuous, people who are trustworthy, people who you might say they know they can do business with, they can shake hands with and make something happen. And, you know, if you don't have all three operating, I don't think you can be uh, certainly a master in any profession, right? Absolutely. Um, so I had earmarked a few things and uh, page oh. 51 has, I'm not supposed to do, but I'm folded down the page because I didn't <laughs> have your card in the other one. So um, the three C's of fundraising. So um, I want to talk to you about the more correlation between leadership and fundraising, but did you just sit down one day and say, I'm going to write a book? You know, what, was the, what was the inspiration and how did you connect? You had a bunch of people in here, and I guess they're all very experienced fundraising professionals. You might, you might find this story uh, curious. Um, since I turned 30 and every consecutive decade since, on the, the 9th, you know, the 29th, 39th, 49th, 59th, I would use that year and very deliberately to reflect on my life up to that point, trying to be, to honestly look at both success, but also failures, places for improve, and to look at the next 10 years and try and project out what can I do with these next 10 years to have impact. So um, six years ago, I was 59. 
And, uh, and I should say every decade, uh, I got more intense about this too. But uh, when I was 59, I was really working through that year. And I decided in that spring to take 100 days and really drill down about the future. And every day on my journal, you know, day one slash 100, day 15 slash 100, I began my journal. And I, I journal as part of my morning rituals every morning, literally. And, um, and seeking, seeking ahead, you might say. And along, believe it or not, along day, around day 72, 73, and 75, I have the journal. Uh, I have what I call, oh, I don't know, with a small eye inspiration. And the inspiration, as I referred to a few minutes ago, was to give back to the profession that I wanted to start there. And I thought, well, you know, I, I, I've done, I had done so much um, uh, mentoring and coaching and, and fundraising with, with staff and volunteers and so on. And I was very good at doing something briefly. So somebody asked a question, and well, as you can tell, I can go on for more than five minutes, but you know, in five minutes, I could do a really good answer that would be appreciated. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I could do some brief videos because people don't want to watch long videos. And then I thought, well, not everybody wants to watch a video, let alone looking at me for five minutes. Uh, people prefer to read. So I thought, you know, let me do both. And so this book was actually the genesis of this book would logistically, you might say, is transcribing my first year and a half of videos on these very subjects. Well, Hugh, you may know this, many, I'm, I would guess your audience may as well, but, you know, five, six, seven minutes of um, video, especially at the speed I talk, which is kind of slow, that only translates to a few pages. Well, I got into this and I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to have a book. And, and the other part of it was, I never tried to give a comprehensive answer about something. It was more like stuff I noodled about, experimented with, discovered in the course of my years as a fundraiser that I thought was helpful. And so that's what prompted me to go out and recruit ultimately 26 others to um, join me as collaborators in this. And um, it was a fun experience, Hugh, because Oh, you know, maybe 60% uh, of them I knew, some very, very well. But the others I went out and recruited based on kind of word of mouth and reference. And I had to, you know, establish a relationship with them, you know, like a donor and uh, ask, them, ask them for their assistance and so on. And I found, uh, you know, overwhelming willingness to be supportive. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's 20, yeah, 26 of them here all by name. And each chapter says collaboration. Yeah. So speak a little bit about um, how collaboration works for you and it, how it manifests itself in the book. I, it's interesting how you have the sections in each chapter with the dots and then italics to stand apart but where there's a dialogue. Well, so what I was trying to do was, like I said, say, say something about the particular subject, an insight, an angle that uh, that had, you know, kind of, uh, I had come to realize through experience and effort and training. And, but then I wanted to enrich it. And so I tried to find people and I called them collaborators. In other words, I wanted to start with what I had to say about a particular subject and then let, ask them to add to it. And nobody really 
directly contradicted me as a collaborator. But they collaborated in the sense that they took the content seriously and then enhanced it with their own reflections. Many of them added stories that are just, you know, kind of putting the flesh on the bones of the, of the point of the chapter. And uh, they, you know, and, and it was interesting, you know, some people, uh, if I had asked them to write it, they wouldn't have written it. They're too busy. So I had somebody help me interview them. And then, you know, so we, we kind of came to it in different ways based on the needs um, and the availability and the interests of my collaborators. So I tried to collaborate logistically, just practically in order to have them help, but they were very generous with their time. And the thing about this word collaboration is, you know, um, the goal is a joint thing we do together. The goal is to bring the best of more than one person to bear in order to, as you talk about with synergy in the, with your organization, to get that synergistic gain, to get that exponential gain that you can't in and of yourself necessarily, even if you're the, uh, an, an authority, have your CFRE, those of you who are in the audience and so on. You know, um, people introduce me sometimes you know, at a keynote, here's Hugh Ballou, he's an expert in leadership. And I get up, I'm Hugh Ballou, I'm a serious student of leadership. You're yeah, here. You're here. So um, I wanna ask a couple more things and I wanna talk about our title of this is, you know, fundraising in this, tough time uh, in our COVID-19 world, in our post-COVID-19 world, um, um, there are some consistent things and there's some new, new thoughts for what we ought to do. So that, that chapter with uh, leadership, the 51, the, the C's, three C's, and um, your collaborator said, um, he also liked going ABC. Let me start with authenticity, belief, and confidence. Yeah. So you and I were talking before we went live about how, um, fundraising is is terrifying for a lot of us. Right. I don't want to go. It's like when I was a teenager and wanted to call a girl for a date. I didn't want to get turned down. So I just can't buy the phone and sweat. <laughs> is that a similar thing with fundraising? You know, nonprofit leaders and clergy wanting to, wanting to make a money call. Well, what, what is it about money that, that's so fearful? Well, what is it about money that's so fearful? Well, either or, or I think trying to raise money, rather specifically, yeah. yes. Yeah, 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 to try and raise money. I don't know, you know, I think it's the fear of the unknown. It's all about fear, right? It's the fear of the unknown, it's fear of being rejected, the fear of fumbling your way through it, the fear of somebody being rude to you. Uh, if you bring somebody with you, the fear that you'll be embarrassed in front of them or in some way embarrass them. Uh, it, it's something new, I, I haven't done it before. Now, for those who are in religious kind of work, well, you know, it's, it's unseemly, right? It's unseemly. I, I shouldn't have to do that kind of thing as a pastor. Leave that to somebody else to do. And so there's a lot of things. And when I first got into major gift fundraising, um, I, this is here in the St. Louis area, but I would crisscross Southern Illinois, a largely rural area, sometimes driving an hour, hour and a half to see somebody. And I would, I would be talking about sweating bullets. I would, I would rehearse, uh, you know, half the trip, you know, uh, Hugh, would you and Mary consider a gift, you know, uh, for the education of uh, poor elementary kids, 
a gift of $10,000, and you could even pay that over three years, Hugh, would you do? Well, I would say that over and over and over again, Hugh, because I, I couldn't trust myself. And, and when I first began to do it and I fumbled, it was a long drive back knowing I hadn't done what I set out to do. So I, I began to rehearse very, very seriously. Because once I, once I got in the home or the office, who knows what might happen and be something you can't, I couldn't predict. But all I had to do is say Hugh and Mary and out would come the rest because I had rehearsed and so on. So for those of you who are thinking about, or you're, gonna, you're being called upon to raise money, look at, uh, practice makes perfect. You can do it. But let me shift this to something more serious. Fundraising is a privilege. And fundraising is the most honorable of work. Fundraising is a spiritual work. Voca fundraising is actually a vocation. And I came to this once I was talking to a woman, very wise woman, and I was talking about fundraising and the struggles. And she said, Martin, you know, you're in a helping profession. Well, you know, a helping profession. I, I, I'd never thought of it that way. And I thought, well, you know, you think, especially now, physicians, nurses, uh, first responders, educators. Oh my gosh, the young families, two of my kids are educating kids at home. And they have a, a manifold appreciation of what it takes to be an educator now that they're trying to do it, uh, you know, in their living rooms and around the kitchen table. But I hadn't thought of fundraising, my profession as being something that was actually about helping. And that's what it is. Because what we do as fundraisers is in, in effect, we're facilitators. I like to refer to myself, to our folks in this work as facilitators of philanthropy. What we do is on behalf of worthy causes, we stand on behalf of those causes, but in effect, what we want to do is come alongside, almost put our arm around the shoulder of someone, someone's, and say, look, there's an opportunity that makes sense to you as I've gotten to know you, and through which you can demonstrate a great impact on this world. Uh, and here, here's the idea, would you consider it? And that kind of work is, is very, very powerful and honorable work. You know, I've had people, and I've had the privilege, as many of perhaps your audience have had, of uh, intera interacting with some people of extraordinary success, um, you know, Fortune 25 uh, executives. And I've had some of those people say to me, you know, Martin, I could never do that job. That is too hard a job. And some of them knew it firsthand, Hugh, because you know they were chairman of uh, nonprofits, they were board members, they were called upon to go out and do it. And they knew firsthand what it was like that I was doing full time. And uh, they respected it. And that's another way, you know, we, we underestimate the value, the contribution that we're making in this work. Wow. That's a paradigm shift. Uh, somewhere, and it may be in this chapter five, generous fundraisers, where you start talking about, before we reflect more about donors, let's consider you, you know, you as the fundraiser. But somewhere you talk about, I want to hear about that, but somewhere you talk about the impact it has on donors to actually donate. Right. The, the, and I'm going to ask Bob and Jeffrey to come in and talk in the second half of our conversation there. 
<clears throat> they're professional fundraisers, um, career people also retired. Um, well, do you ever retire? <laughs> I am what I am. So <clears throat> let's take that word off the, off the chart. Um, so there, you, you talk about how important it is for a donor to, there's a part of philanthropy, and I'll ask Bob to ask you about that, but there's a part of philanthropy that it releases something in you to make that donation and see something happen. You know, talk about that a little bit, because that, that's an inspiration that we, we, we don't think about, the impact it has on the donor. Right, so you know, first of all, it's all about the donor. And I think what we tend to do is we want to focus on ourselves. And in one sense, we should, because we want to be professional and effective and do the job with excellence. And we also want to represent our organizations with integrity and, um, you know, as, as effectively as we can. But it's really all about the donor. And what we're into is a business of building relationships, lifelong relationships. We're not just after a transaction. We're at, we, we want to build and support the relationship that the donor has with the organization for their lifetime, hopefully. And in that process, in that relationship building, there are opportunities for financial exchange. And what this is about, again, it's not about a transaction, although, you know, writing a check or, you know, giving away stock or giving a document that demonstrates a, there's a bequest commitment, all that's part of it. But what it's really about is helping people to uh, influence the world for the better and to uh, demonstrate their values and what matters most to them. Well, in that process of a donor taking their eyes off of themselves, and looking outward, looking at, okay, I've been blessed, I've been fortunate enough to have accrued these assets, these resources. Now, rather than being preoccupied with how I could take care of myself, I'm going to give it to others or to the world to improve it. As they do that, they become greater people. And um, you know, biochemically, by the way, we change. Uh, enzymes are released. Uh, being, they, uh, one, one person called it the family bonding enzyme. I used to know it as you that uh, somebody would make a big gift to one of my organizations and they would say, um, uh, suddenly I would look, they'd be everywhere. They'd be at every event, they'd be bringing friends, they'd be bringing colleagues, they'd be talking about the organization with great enthusiasm. I used to think, well, what's this all about? Well, what would happen is by their making this serious commitment, a gift of greater significance, there actually was something that happened within their entire uh, being. And, uh, you know, a wise man, as you know, once said, it's better to give than to receive. And there is something that we, we receive this internal, if you might say it, spiritual is another way to put it, reward by giving of ourselves generously. And one of the ways we give ourselves generously, certainly in this contemporary age, is with financial resources, in addition to our time, of course, and our, 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 our wisdom, our talents. Well, that's so good. The other thing I'd hear Mark ask about, and I want to get to the COVID time, um, you wrote this chapter nine about the donor development cycle. And um, you know, there is a transaction, and there are those that never ask for the sale. Um, and I've been, I've been there many times and one how net worth person looked at me, well, you didn't ask for a sale. I said, that was, it was my first conversation to get acquainted. 
but he was a businessman. What, you know, what do you want? <laughs> and then another one, I'm, I'm packing up to leave after I've told him about what I'm doing. He says, don't you want a check? <laughs> and then he wrote me a check, handed it to me a lot bigger than I thought. So, you know, I, um, and it was, that was about relationship. Um, but, but this cycle, uh, you, you go through steps, identification, qualification, there's, there's steps. So talk about the whole, the whole process. Um, it's, there is a transaction, but there's a whole lot more to, to this process. Well, so, yeah, I mean, again, the, the, the bottom line is this is a bottom relationship. And so in the course of a relationship, you go through seasons and, um, you know, in, in this particular uh, cycle that uh, we use in our, in the fundraising business, you know, you identify, we have what we call qualify, which means, you know, are these people of capacity? Are these people that have an interest or potential interest in what we represent? Then we cultivate, which is about building a relationship, involving them if possible in the organization. And that can include some charitable giving, but not a gift, let's say, of greater significance. And then we, as we get to know them, we're able to think about, okay, given what they are interested in, how does that align with what we are about as an organization? What dimensions in our organization would be something that would make sense to them that they would desire to support? And then we, we have the conversation about asking. Now, some people are proponents. They say they've never asked for money. They just listen their way to a gift. Talk about listening in a minute, perhaps. But I've always believed in, in my practice to uh, have conversations about money, about scale, about impact, about size. And uh, it might be, you know, with this amount, you can do this, with this amount, you can do this and that, that kind of thing and provide some options. But I always want to be working with numbers because people want to know what they want, you know, what we would like them to do. And um, my experience has been perhaps more often the opposite of your shoe. If I don't ask, I get something smaller than what I had hoped for. So uh, I've always become one to say, let's talk about money. It's just a part of life. It's, you know, it's how we carry on in this world. And most people want to know what we really, let's get down to the bottom line, Martin, how much you want, you know, that kind of thing. They want to know. And uh, they can say yes, no, maybe so. Or um, I want to make that happen, but I can't make it make that happen now. Or we, we're going to have to think more creatively about doing it. I can't write you a check. Um, and um, so um, I don't know if that's helpful. It gets to what you're after here. Um, just just probing some of your some of your knowledge. There's a, a whole whole process. This oh, if I might, if I might, uh, so. so I've always taught our people, and I've always been one to practice the 80-20 rule, which is listen 80% of the time. When you think about, and COVID-19 has kind of brought us to a hard stop here in some respects, but when you think about the frenetic pace of life that's only gotten faster and faster and faster during our adult years, has had reached the point of sheer lunacy. Was anyone listening to anybody? I think one of the reasons we're such a divided nation is we completely lost the ability to listen and listen with respect. And what I found in fundraising, and I think many profession, professionals in other fields would say the same, same thing, 
If you want success in your life, in your business, in your endeavors, you listen. And so uh, it wouldn't be that I would listen 100% of the time, right? But what I found is people desperately wanted to be heard. They wanted to be listened to attentively, appreciatively, and respectfully. And honestly, I think when I think about, you know, to what extent I was a, a great fundraiser in my career, it's because of the power of listening. Now, the other piece, you know, I got asked for money and do all that stuff. But listening puts us in that best position to understand. Now, what I would do is I would um, retain, record, and retrieve three R's. Retain. Somebody had something to say during the course of the conversation. I was listening closely and thinking to myself, that's important. Record. I get in the car, I call my assistant and say, start taking notes. Or I'd get back to the office and I'd start typing on my computer. And I would record all the various things I thought would be insightful and helpful, not just for me, but for anyone in our organization that would have reason to engage with those people. And then when I would next prepare, in preparation, this is all about preparation, this kind of work. When I would prepare for my next visit, I would retreat. Because the thing is, you in work like this, we're in front of different wonderful people every day. And over the course, you know, if a month, month has passed, there's no guarantee I'm going to remember what somebody said that was important to them a month ago. So one way I respect them is by retaining, recording, and retrieving. So that when I return to them, I could say, Hugh, so how's Mary Alice doing? You were talking about that she was facing that surgery. Or Hugh, how's that Billy Goat dog of yours doing? You were worried about this or that. Or Hugh, I understand you finally, uh, you, you said you were gonna be marrying off uh, your son, Charlie. How'd it go? Well, I tell you what, people know I'm representing the organization, but they love the fact, love the fact that I listened to them as people. I cared about them as people. Now, do you think you, when it came to talking about a gift eventually, that put me in a better position to be uh, taken seriously? Without question without question. So, you know, it, it seems like, geez, well, this is common sense, isn't it? But I, I think we've lost a lot of common sense. <laughs> well, the only problem with common sense is that it's not very common. Um, yes. uh, we're at, you've mentioned COVID. There's something going on, I think, about COVID. I want to take a minute and say, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. If you're just coming by Facebook or just found us on a podcast, we a series of interviews uh, for six years. We have uh, go to the nonprofit, T-H-E, nonprofit exchange, the nonprofit exchange.org, and you'll find the landing page with this episode and the last one. And every time you go there, there's new material and there's a link for the archives. Uh, you can go back and choose topics uh, important for today's nonprofit leaders. And we're going to shift. He mentioned uh, the, the COVID crisis and how does fundraising impact uh, that what we're doing? But I want to mention that we are able to do the work of Center Vision Leadership Foundation because of our corporate sponsors. And today we want to support um, Easy Card. Easy Card is, is where you have our organization in your hand. Center Vision Leadership Foundation is a community for people building communities, nonprofit leaders, clergy, Chamber of Commerce presidents, cause-based charities, an easy card is easy to get. And if you just uh, pull out your texting program, and I'll tell you again later, so you may want to write it down, 
you're going to send it, you're going to text to this number, 64600, 64600, five digits. Go down to the message and put in LDR, short for leader, and you'll get Center Vision's card, and you'll find out all about what we're doing. And soon we'll have a tab up here in a couple of days about a collaboration we're doing on a youth philanthropy conference, uh, building philanthropy in the future. Actually, it's today they're building philanthropy, oh, but gosh. it's going to set the bar for the future. We're bringing some of our, our, our audience here to comment. But let's make a pivot. We talked about some brilliant reframing of some of the old old scripts we tell ourselves that, that minimize our fundraising. And I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody else, um, maybe more. <clears throat> so that's not my job. I teach leadership. So we got a new era coming. We're, we've been in an era where we've been locked down. We're getting, we're going back to work in Virginia. We're going to restaurants. Churches are sort of meeting, you know, with very, very limited, lots of rules, very limited engagement, no children, no singing. So there's a whole new paradigm of how the, the Y is opening up that their exercise classes are in the parking lot. And it's raining all week. <laughs> so, so, and then, you know, people are getting paychecks for a couple of months from uh, unemployment, but then what if that, when, when that money runs out, what? So we're facing some new challenges. So what do you think, how, that, how does that impact our fundraising going forward? Well, I mean, I think if you look back to the um, Great Recession, some sectors did better than other sectors in terms of fundraising during the Great Recession. And, um, you know, in fact, I, I might mention that in the Great Recession, I had just come to the University of Missouri-St. Louis to take a campaign that was already underway public. And, um, you know, uh, I was there a month and the, uh, the economic sky fell and uh, the whole world was thrown into craziness. Now, it doesn't exactly align up with uh, our, our situation today, but there's some similarities, certainly. And, uh, you know, long story short, Hugh, um, we decided to go ahead with that campaign. And in that, my first year there, we raised 54% more than any other year in the history of that institution. So uh, when I hear someone say, boy, we can't ask for money now, people, people don't have it. Um, I immediately say, well, not necessarily true. Now, one thing I would say this is, if somebody's philanthropic and they have less money, are they less philanthropic? I don't think so. Okay, philanthropy is a part of a value system. And so, and let me ask you this about your organization you represent. Has this value proposition changed because of this pandemic? No, it hasn't. Now, you know, if you're a food bank, uh, <clears throat> there might be uh, more urgency, uh, immediacy, and people's interest to do something because um, crises brings out people's desire to try and do something for others, whether it's by cutting a check or by, uh, you know, cheering on the streets as, uh, uh, for the first responders and the nurses, whatever it might be. But people want to be, be supportive. And one way they're supportive is certainly with their philanthropic support too. 
Love it, love it. Would you like to have some questions from our from our audience? As long as they're all softballs. <laughs> oh, no guarantees. But these are there's Jeffrey Fulgham. He's from Richmond, Virginia, and um, well, he's turned his mic on, and he's a CFRE and uh, has done many really good things. He used to be in Lynchburg, but he moved over to well, just a couple hours away. But Jeffrey, thanks for being here today. Do you have a particular observation or a question for our guest today? Yeah, I don't. I don't really have a question, but but I but I love what um, what I'm hearing, um, Martin. <laughs> Uh, I, the first thing when I came, I came on just a little bit late and, and I, so I missed the very beginning, but um, I really like the part when you were talking about studying and that's really only part of the equation. And certainly, you know, you can glean all this information, but as you started moving through your presentation, you started talking about relationships, which for me has always been the meat of, of this business. And it's never more important than it is right now of letting folks know that we, we care about them and, and you hit that nail right on the head. And uh, that's, what, that's what I've been preaching to, to my clients and my associates and how important it is to stay connected to people and, and let them know that, that this relationship, that this is a relationship and it's a personal relationship before it's a financial relationship. And, um, and I really like what you said about character, too, because I think that's the core of, of what we're doing. It's certainly the core of leadership. And, and if you don't have the character, then you probably shouldn't be a fundraiser and probably shouldn't be in leadership either. And, um, and the other thing that you mentioned about evaluating, I thought that was so good. because I used to do that. I didn't start doing it nearly early enough. I wish I'd done it the way you did it. I started getting, and just over maybe the last five years, has taken the month of December. Um, and actually, it's been more the month of January because we're so darn busy in December that we don't have the time. And so I kind of started doing it in January and doing sort of a post-mortem on the year and on my life. And, you know, how can I do things better? And um, this, is, this is really great, great stuff. And um, I'm glad I connected on today. Well, Jeffrey, first of all, Pleased to meet you, and thanks for your great comments. And uh, I'm glad I'm in the ballpark with mine. Um, you know, one of the things, in fact, I just did a podcast on this, and I'm writing a chapter for somebody's book on morning rituals. And every morning, uh, as part of my morning rituals, I have a one-page uh, personal professional planner, I call it, by the way. And I review what matters most about my life. And that is a way for me to get locked and loaded for the day in order to go forth and have the greatest impact possible. And, you know, I, certainly as a professional, but as a person, you know, what am I all about as a person? Being able to define that, have it clarified, being able to review it every day for me has just been amazingly powerful. One other thing I would say, and, you know, around that word authenticity, uh, we heard earlier, you know, People want to be authentic and they want authentic people in front of them. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to be perfect in our work, but we have to be respectful, thoughtful, and do it the best we can. Fundraisers come in all shapes and sizes and abilities and people understand that. But what they don't want is a fake. What they don't want is a snake oil salesman. They want a human being 
a human being, in fact, that they can respect and look up to. That's what they want from us. Yeah, yeah I definitely agree with that. That, um, that authenticity and character and that genuineness. People would ask me about, you know, these, about having these relationships with people. And I said, you know, it has to be a genuine relationship. You can't have a relationship where you want someone to think that it's about the fact that you like them and you want a relationship, but it's really about the money, but you're trying to, to cloak it so that it, so that it looks genuine. And I said, well, you know, it might work for you for a little while, but it's not going to work for you forever. And, you know, if you really want to have successful fundraising, it's about long-term relationships with people. And, um, and I've, I'm fortunate. I still am connected to people that I'm, I'm three or four organizations removed from now. And, um, and I still have relationships with them and I still, and I still talk to them and I still email with them. And especially right now with everything that's going on, just try and stay in touch. And boy, that's the fun part of this. For me, it's the, the most fun. I'm bringing Bob. I'm sorry, I cut you off. I'm going to bring in Bob here. But go ahead, Martin. I cut you off. Sorry. Well, it's, you know, it, the relationships is the most gratifying part of the deal. It's not about the dollars raised, although that's great too because it, it can accomplish great things. No, it's all about the relationship. We, in our business, we get to meet the most wonderful people, don't we, Jeffrey? I mean, phenomenal people. We're privileged to meet. When I think about, you know, my own personal and professional development, a lot of it was profoundly stimulated by the people I've gotten to spend time with in this work of fundraising. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got to spend time with Jeffrey and Bob Hopkins. Uh, you see the horse there. That's his current horse, which is that one is philanthropy. And Bob knows something about philanthropy. He had a magazine uh, and then he published his book here. So Bob, you've been, you've been quietly listening. Do you have a question or a comment for our guest today? Absolutely. Can you hear can you hear what I'm saying? Absolutely. Good. Well, I'm in my backyard outside. Didn't know that my uh, I had any airwaves back here, but it's incredible. Beautiful day in Dallas, by the way. And I am loving listening to you. You know, after 40 years of doing this kind of thing, you think you know it all. And um, while I might say I do, it's so much fun to to remember uh, some of the key aspects of the fundraising process and you know, when you first started talking, I thought, um, why doesn't he talk about listening? And then sure enough, the next <laughs> 15 minutes, you talked about listening. And I'm so grateful for that conversation. I teach speech okay. and I'm teaching people how to talk. But there is a chapter in my book called listening. And you know what? I spend about five minutes on listening because I don't think people need to know anything about it. And I am so wrong because as you said, the 80 20% thing is, uh, is so true. And I have so many great stories of when I didn't listen. And you know what, I didn't get the gift. Or when I listened and waited and patiently took my time about receiving that I got about six times more money than I would have gotten had I asked earlier when the person wasn't ready. You know, it's such a great comment, Bob, and pleased to meet you. You know, I think it's the part of that, you know, we talk about this in a lot of fields, but that blending of um, the art and the science. And, you know, as I said, developing competency, you know, is about certainly education, but it's about experience. Maybe that's the better way that I would prefer it. But 
as we, uh, you know, this is a work you learn on the job. It's on the job training. And uh, as we stick with it, and this is, it saddens me when I think about all the turnover in the profession, because if someone's willing to stick with it and uh, keep at it, as I mentioned, as you well know, Bob and Jeffrey and Hugh, the, the, uh, the satisfaction is phenomenal to be in this work and to become competent at it over time is immensely gratifying too. Um, so, yeah. Bob Beautiful Jeffrey, horse, by the way, Bob. Is <laughs> that's not his current one. He's, he's got a current one that, that he's really proud of. And uh, he's, uh, that's his passion. I asked him one day, we were having lunch in Dallas when we first met. I said, what's your passion? And he went off on this horse thing. I said, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So the, the, the Pareto principle is 80-20. You know, 80% of your results are produced by 20% of your people. 80% um, of your inventory only produces 20% of your profit, but 20% produces 80% of your profit. So probably probably it goes for donors. It's a repeated principle. When I, when I wrote my first book, uh, Moving Spirits, Building Lives, it's about church, church musician as transformational leader. So that's where I started moving into the leadership realm. It took me 40 years to write this, 30 days to put it on paper uh, when I was leaving the profession. But I, I determined in that book um, the Baloo 1090 principle. I determined as music director, 10% of my job was music. 90% made that possible. So I'm thinking in as far as uh, a professional fundraiser, you know, the 10% the is what people see. But the 90%, just like under the, ice, under the water of the iceberg, 90% is relationship communications, um, staying in, you know, that staying in touch with them um, that allows that 10% to happen. There's a whole lot that happens that's invisible to most people, but that's, that's where the real hard, hard lifting is. Um, yeah. So let's, let's, let's hit real hard on some of this. We, we still got money in the economy. There's still money. The Fed just printed a whole bunch more digital currency. So money didn't go away. Now, some people are struggling to make ends meet, uh, but some companies are doing really well. And um, I mean, Google had a you know, record-breaking quarter. Um, grocery stores are just, just slammed. So I, I don't know. There's some industries that are really challenged. There's some restaurants going out of business, but there's still money in, in, out there and there's people who want to make a difference. So what's the change in mindset for addressing the new normal here? Well, I think first of all, you know, in some ways, uh, the mindset hasn't changed. In other words, we have an organization worthy of support that's doing important work in this world. And we are engaging with people that want to make a difference with their lives and with their resources to the extent that they can. Now, they may have had a hit. They may have taken a hit financially. And, um, you know, they may not be able to do something right now. They may have to structure it differently. Uh, back in the Great Re Recession, and I mentioned we raised, um, you know, 54% more in any prior year in the, instit in the institution's history. Um, you know, that wasn't people writing a bunch of huge checks. People were writing smaller checks. They were making pledges over longer periods of time. They were doing, putting, you know, parts of their gifts in their estate and so on. And you, they bundle it all together and it would be, you know, a number that was not insignificant for them, very significant, but they couldn't do it uh, when, like, you know, even today, a, a year ago, somebody might give you 
whatever that large number is with a check or a couple of checks over a couple of years. Now they may want to still give you that number or something near it, but it's going to be put together in a whole different kind of package. But you know, what we need to do is be sensitive to with, with people. And Jeffrey had mentioned it. I think Q and Bob, we're, we're all talking the same talk here that, you know, we have to put the people first, concern for the people first. And because there, there are relationships. And if we treat them that way, whether they can make a gift now, um, you know, it, they may or may not, they may be able to make it as much as we would hope or not, but we're building the relationship for the long term. We're doing our job with the relationship by putting them first and their concerns first. I mean, how many of us, we, we all have stories, we all have connections a degree or two away from us, but people that have really been profoundly impacted by this. So we should know it firsthand and certainly we need to be sensitive as we engage with others. Another thing I would say is when to raise major, uh, major gifts, it's typically a face-to-face, -face, you know, labor intensive uh, business. And you know, up until very recently, you know, there hasn't been any face-to-face -face work. Pretty hard to talk, have an intimate talk with a donor 10 feet apart. But uh, tools like Zoom, I mean, even my sister who uh, just turned 70 years old knows how to use Zoom now. I'm sorry, uh, 80 years old. And, um, you know, we can all use Zoom. And people welcome Zoom calls, or the equivalent, of course. You know, video calls, because they desire that human interaction. And if we call, we get on a call like this, and we just have a conversation, and we listen to them, that's very, very powerful. It just shows that, that whoever thought of this stupid term, social distancing, it, it's really physical distancing. And it's, uh, you know, we're still social. And, and actually what's playing out is anti-social distancing. Um, so so um, I'm gonna, before we get off here, is let Bob talk a little bit about youth philanthropy. And maybe um, from St. Louis, you could be a supporter of what we're gonna do in June. But um, this book is chock full of stuff that's not, it's not rocket science, it's not new, but it's, it's really solid experience when people have been there, done it. And stuff that most of us don't know. Um, now you guys have been around, you've done this for years, and you've, you've, you've practiced this. Yeah, I'm a musician, we rehearse. Uh, so you've rehearsed a lot, and you've, you've gotten it down. And what I'm so appreciative of is you've put it in a book, and, and you're sharing it with people. So number one, why should people have this book? Why should they get it? And two, where, could, where do they get it? And um, you know, why should they get it? Where can they get it? Why they should get it is... Um... It's a way of staying current in the work. If you're a beginner, it's an it's a insightful introduction to the work. And it's getting 27 experts uh, or seasoned professionals input, not just once. It's, it's, I call it five minutes for fundraising because each chapter is about a five minute read. So, and they, they're standalone chapters. You don't have to sit and read it in, in, you know, consecutive, consecutively so you can go to what uh, resonates or you need right now. Uh, in terms of the book, if you want to get autographed book, 15% off, no shipping and handling, go to martinlifel.com and order it there. Uh, or you can get it, um, you know, uh, at Amazon and, and download it, you know, to your Kindle app for 10 bucks. Um, you know, so like any book, it's available in multi-channels. And it's not an expensive book. Um, so I'm going to talk again about um, some of the stuff that Cerevision's doing and uh, 
and come back to you um, and for you to give a summary, just a kind of summary of what do we need to do going forward in this, this really different time, but I'll come back to you for that. And I want to encourage people to, um, to get their easy card. It's the Center Vision Leadership Foundation Easy Card. Just send a text to 64600 when your text program and then put in up there two. It says two, 64600. And the message put in LDR. You'll get a text back and touch the hot link and voila, you'll have this. And it'll tell you about Center Vision Leadership Foundation. It'll tell you about uh, Nonprofit 360 Magazine, Nonprofit Exchange videos. You just scroll down here, you see. There is Martin uh, Liefeld, and this is today's today's episode. You'll see the video up there. Uh, actually, it's, it's in there right now as we're speaking. And then um, soon there'll be a tab about Youth Philanthropy Summit. So get your easy card, and you know what? Get your own easy card. If you want to stay in touch with your donors, with your board members, with your tribe, this is the relationship part. We can't always be there, but you can send them a text. Boom. Hey. We're doing a special event on Friday, don't forget. And the current, the current generations are living more on their phones. And if you tell a millennial, put this in your calendar and be there in two weeks, they won't come. But if you text them 20 minutes before and say, hey, we're doing something, they'll be there. <laughs> so it's a whole different reality. So we're gonna, I mentioned that we're gonna be uh, collaborating with uh, Mr. Philanthropy, uh, Bob Hopkins. And what Bob has done to inspire students is quite remarkable and I've interviewed a few of them. So, so Bob, can you give us like a two minute overview of what we're gonna expect in this? I think we're calling it a Youth Philanthropy Conference in June, June 27th. Exactly, on Saturday morning, June 27th from, I think it's gonna be 10 o'clock until two o'clock so that we can get Eastern Standard and Central Standard and Mountain Time, et cetera, all involved so it's not too late or early for anybody. But we do a paid program, Philanthropy and Volunteerism in Education every summer. For the first time, we have to go virtual. And so I thought, why not expand, expand, expand? I, my book is certainly worldly and I have contacts all over the United States and I'm just gonna give everybody an opportunity to come into this, this uh, youth and philanthropy deal. And it's gonna be led by four of our graduates from our program. They're 13, 15, 17, and 22 years old. Two brothers and two sisters who are amazing and they're gonna be able to lead this thing we're gonna have some surprises and some surprise, surprise acts. Who know, we might have Troy Aikman or somebody special like Big Bird come in and do some active stuff too. But we're starting age seven, seven right. to 12 is the first two hours. And then after that is 13 years old to 22. And so we're gonna hopefully gonna have a hundred kids and then another hundred people who will wanna look in and just see what we're doing with kids. And so that's the deal. And Hugh is going to be the moderator I'm the organizer. We've got four kids who are going to be the presenters of the materials and their mothers and friends and associates, et cetera, et cetera, are going to support the effort. So, Martin, if we send you information, would you share it with your network, please? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Yeah, we're, um, we're um, I, every one of the students that I talk to that, that Bob touches is, is uh, interested in philanthropy and see the new a new avenue for themselves and these kids are just amazing i say kids these are these are adult human beings <laughs> they're just younger adult human beings and and uh, bob has inspired them and their parents have inspired them it's just a, a whole new it's current reality they're today's philanthropists and building a future for tomorrow and i would like to say that the work of nonprofits today is more important than ever before in history 
So this has been a very helpful interview, lots of good sound bites. It'll be transcribed and up on the site, the nonprofit exchange, so people can go and read some sound bites from you. What do you want to leave people with today? What's a challenge or a thought as we go into the unknown? Well, uh, every day we're going into the unknown queue, and that was six months ago too. So uh, every day, it's new every morning, as it says in the Book of Lamentations. Those of you who look at the Bible. <laughs> so um, what we're what we're after is helping people become greater through philanthropy. We're doing that through uh, putting them first, respecting who they are, helping them to demonstrate their value system to the world. Hopefully by working with our organization as part of the, their way of doing so. Um, we were privileged, it's honorable work as I've mentioned, and it's worth people devoting their lives to. If I might, I'd like to quote with uh, not the not to highlight myself, but this is very powerful. When I retired uh, two years ago, they had a party for me, which is very nice at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And, um, and a number of the donors were there that I had worked with for years. Well, unbeknownst to me, they had a video that, uh, in fact, if, if you go to Martin Liefeld YouTube retirement, <laughs> it's, it's on there. But uh, this couple who were the... Uh, uh, the first alumni of this young university to reach a $5 million level of cumulative giving uh, work uh, on the video. This is what they said, if I might. And I think it pulls it together and certainly represents so much uh, uh, my, great, my gratitude for the uh, work of philanthropy in my life. They said, by teaching us about giving, Martin, you have given us a great gift. Our philanthropic involvement with the university has enhanced our lives on many, many levels. We owe that to you. Martin, because of your professionalism, expertise, and friendship, you made something that is truly enjoyable even more rewarding. You showed us the way to contribute in a meaningful manner, and this resulted in our receiving so much in return. Man. What a great summary! I want to say Isn't amen. that amazing? That's that is, what it's a. That's what it's about. It is amazing. You have touched people's lives on both ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Martin, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your time with us today. On the thank you, Q. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.